From time to time, we have embarked on expository series. One of my favorite types of preaching to take a book and simply go through it verse by verse and study it and preach from it. I think I grow more and learn more from that type of approach, and I enjoy expository preaching. And we have studied uh, in that manner, using that method, several books through the years that I've been blessed to be at White Oak. And as we begin our final year here, I'd like to I'd like to begin a series of expository lessons from three epistles that are particularly applicable to preachers, but to Christians as well. And it reminds us of what preachers should be and what kind of men they should be and the kind of preaching they should be doing and the kind of preaching we should be demanding uh, from them. And I'm speaking, of course, of what are commonly called the pastoral epistles, that is, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Pastoral epistles is an appropriate term if one is talking about the content of pastors and the instructions for pastors, truly pastors, that is, elders, in the church. And indeed, in First Timothy and in Titus, we do have the qualifications for elders, who are also pastors, another term for elder, we have them recorded there. But if the term pastoral epistle um, has its uh, idea in preachers, then that would be an inappropriate term because preachers are not pastors unless they also serve as elders. But it is proper to view them as pastoral epistles from the standpoint of the content here that is so pertinent to pastors, that is, elders in the church. But there's so much of the content in these epistles that is pertinent to preachers, but there's much also, obviously, that is pertinent to every child of God. And as we study these epistles, we are reminded of something very important about the Scriptures and the nature of the Scriptures, and that is that the Scriptures can deal with certain situations, problems that arose in the early church, and while dealing with those, they are written, the Scriptures are, in such a way as to provide solutions for us in every generation for as long as time stands. That's the beauty and the uniqueness of, of the Bible. It has immediate relevance to the time in which it was written, but it has timeless relevance to every possible situation that could arise. As we mentioned this morning in Bible class, when one studies the Bible, as the late Brother Franklin Camp pointed out, there is no situation that arises that a passage does not exist to deal with that situation. And that's the beauty of Scripture. And so with those few remarks in mind, let's go to 1 Timothy. And tonight, some words of introduction about the book itself and about the man to whom it was written. And then to look briefly at the first four verses as we get into the text itself. Timothy was an unusual young man, a man who was worthy of emulation by every young man. It may be that Timothy obeyed the gospel at 
the age of perhaps 15 years. It may have been that he was about 15 years old when he obeyed the gospel. We're not absolutely certain of his age because we're not told his age. But at the time that Paul penned these words to Timothy, he was believed to be about 30 years of age. And if that is the case, then his conversion would take us back some 15 years. It is certainly believed, based upon the preponderance of the evidence, that Timothy was converted on Paul's first missionary journey, and that he obeyed the gospel there, being from uh, Lystra, and that when Paul and, uh, uh, and Silas came, uh, or Paul and Barnabas came through there initially on the first missionary journey, that's when Timothy rendered obedience to the gospel. And then when Paul and Silas returned, you remember the, the uh, dispute that arose between uh, Paul and Barnabas when they were about to begin that second missionary journey, and John Mark on the first journey had turned back from them at a certain point in the journey, and Paul did not have the confidence at that time in John Mark to take him on the second journey. His confidence was later restored, as his words uh, clearly indicate, that he had a restored confidence in John Mark. But Barnabas, being a relative of Mark, um, was perhaps a little more inclined to give him a second chance and wanted to take him on that second missionary journey. But the dispute arose, and there was a sharp disagreement uh, between Paul and Barnabas, and so Paul and Silas went their way, and uh, Barnabas took John Mark and went his way. So Paul and Silas, on the second missionary journey, came back through these areas where Paul and Barnabas had been on the first journey, and it was at that time that as they came back to Lystra that Paul determined that he wanted Timothy to become his longtime assistant and companion in the gospel and one who would be faithful to him and encourage him and assist him and assist others in their obedience to the truth. And so it was from that time forward that Timothy became a very close companion, a very trusted companion, and an encourager of the Apostle Paul. It's interesting that despite the so-called generation gap that may have existed and did exist between them, in other words, the age difference was rather significant, around 30 years plus or so, it was during Paul's last hours as he penned his second epistle to Timothy in his final imprisonment before he was martyred. It was Timothy he wanted with him. Timothy was not with him at that time, and yet, as we will eventually study, the Lord willing, he wrote to him and encouraged him to come to him. If you look over at 2 Timothy 4, verse 13, Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Then he speaks of some who had uh, done him wrong, the Lord had stood with him at my first defense. No one stood with me. And then down at verse 21 of 2 Timothy 4, he says, Do your utmost to come before winter. The aged apostle in his last hours on the earth wanted the young Timothy, whom he trusted implicitly, to be with him during those last hours. That's indicative of the kind of confidence that Paul had in this young man. It's indicative of the kind of man Timothy was. There is never an indication, despite any kind of trial, any kind of challenge, 
anything that was put before this young preacher, there is never any indication in Scripture that he wavered, that he faltered, that his faith faltered, but that, in fact, it stood firm and that Paul had the utmost confidence in him. Why was Timothy that kind of man? Why was he the kind of man in whom the Apostle Paul had such confidence and who proved himself to be worthy of that confidence? Well, as we're introducing some matters, we again skip to Second Timothy, and we see what Paul wrote about him there in the first words of that epistle, and it gives us insight into something as to the background, somewhat of the background of this man, and an explanation as to why he was the kind of man he was, at least in part. Remember what Paul wrote there at verse 5 of Second Timothy chapter 1? When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. What that reminds us of is the importance of instilling teaching in our children and in our grandchildren, in those whom we have the opportunity to influence as our family. Timothy's father was a Greek. No indication that he ever became a Christian. He may have been dead at the time that these epistles were written to Timothy. But his mother was of Jewish background, and his grandmother, and his mother obviously, and grandmother were faithful and obedient. And the genuine faith that is in you, he says, dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, going back to the grandmother and then to the mother. And I am persuaded, he says, is in you also. It simply reminds us that we need to do and must do all that we can to instill in our children and in our grandchildren a kind of faith that dwelt genuinely in this family. We know that it doesn't always succeed in terms of generation after generation being faithful despite the faithfulness of parents. And we can read in Scripture of a man named Samuel, for example, whose sons were not obedient to the law of Moses despite the godliness of that great prophet, priest, and judge, Samuel. And, let, and yet his children, his sons, were not faithful. And so it is not always an assurance that because a parent is faithful or a grandparent is faithful or a grandparent and then a parent are all faithful to God that that will ultimately result in the faith of that next generation. But it did so with Timothy, and it is a reminder, at least to us, of how important it is to make every effort that we can, not only to teach but to live before our children and before our family, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you recall, too, that Timothy was one whom Paul, when he did determine to take him with him, uh, to assist him in his work, he had him circumcised. Titus, he refused to have circumcised because there was no need to do so. 
because there was no connection to the Jewish religion between Titus uh, and, uh, and his uh, family. But with Timothy, it was different. And it was not a case, as you recall, where Paul determined that he was doing anything to keep the law of Moses when he insisted that Timothy be circumcised. It was a matter of expediency. It was a matter of good judgment because he knew that Timothy, along with Paul, they were going to come into contact with a great many Jews whom they hoped to convert. And they did not want anything to hinder their influence. And so because Timothy's mother was Jewish, Jewish, they determined, Paul did, to have Timothy circumcised so that his influence would not be hindered. It had nothing to do, as we said, with seeking to keep the law or to impose any part of the law of Moses upon Christians because Paul taught very clearly to the contrary. And so Timothy, a very tremendous character in Scripture, not a minor character by any means because he is mentioned time and again throughout the book of Acts. He is mentioned in greetings where he was along with Paul as Paul wrote to various churches. And of course, he has two epistles, which we're about to study, addressed to him personally. What happened to Timothy? We simply do not know. Tradition says he was martyred. We don't know when or if indeed that is the case, but that's what tradition says. We do know that he was with Paul as Paul penned the prison epistles in his first imprisonment, but obviously, as we've already seen, he was not with Paul when Paul wrote 2 Timothy, but Paul encouraged him to come to him and to be with him during his final hours. And so Timothy is a young man worthy of our emulation and certainly an encouragement that indeed young people can be of tremendous service in the kingdom of God. And he was indeed just that. Timothy was a young man who was at times certainly perhaps concerned that his influence might not be as great as it might otherwise have been if he were older, but he did not, and there's no indication that he allowed that to deter him from carrying out the work that he knew God wanted him to do and that the Apostle Paul had encouraged him to do. Now, with those few comments, by way of background and introduction, look with me at the first four verses tonight of the first epistle of Paul to Timothy. And Paul begins, as he often does, by referring to his apostleship. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. There are epistles where Paul refers to himself simply as an apostle of Jesus Christ. There are other epistles where he mentions not only that he is an apostle, but uh, adds the word servant at times. An apostle and a servant. And he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope, which is simply... Paul's way of 
reminding Timothy, though Timothy certainly didn't need the reminder as much as perhaps those who would read this epistle uh, in ages to come or in generations to come, that Paul's apostleship was not something that was um, thrust upon him uh, in a way other than by the commandment of God. There was not something he assumed to take upon himself, but it was something that God himself had ordained or commanded. On the Damascus Road, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Saul of Tarsus, as he was then known, now the Apostle Paul, as he writes to Timothy. And he appeared to him, as we have often said, not to convert him there on the Damascus Road, because his conversion did not occur there, despite what some may contend and do contend about it. His conversion did not did not occur there, but what did occur was a qualification that was much needed in order for him to carry out the work that he would begin to do after he was converted to Christ, after he arose, as Ananias admonished him to do, and was baptized to wash away his sins, as Paul himself recounted in Acts twenty-two, sixteen. In order to become an apostle of Jesus Christ, one had to have seen the risen Lord. And Paul was born as one out of due season, as he mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he was enumerating the appearances of Christ to people after Christ rose from the dead, wherein he appeared on one occasion to more than 500 people at one time. And then Paul, after enumerating those appearances of Christ, said, and he appeared to me also as one born out of due season, or as one born out of due time. That's a reference to the appearance that Jesus made to him on the Damascus Road. And why did he appear to him? He appeared to him, yes, to instruct him as to what he would do to be saved, but the appearance had to be in order for him to become an apostle because an apostle, to be qualified, had to have seen the risen Lord. Paul had not seen him until that moment in time. And it was then that he was commissioned after his conversion to become the apostle primarily to the Gentiles, though he certainly preached to the Jews as well. And so when he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, he is reminding his readers that his apostleship was genuine, not something that he assumed, but something that was ordained by God. He made the same assertion in Galatians chapter 1. In verse 11, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And on he goes further giving the credentials of a true apostle, one who became an apostle by the commandment of God and of the Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice something that is somewhat unusual here. 
from the standpoint of the attribution that God is given as Savior. Generally speaking, though several times in these epistles we see otherwise, the case is that the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as our Savior. But here, the distinction is God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. Is there any sense in which God is our Savior? Well, of course. And Paul is simply referring to God as our Savior, as the one who initiated the very process by which we are saved. It was a process that was initiated by God that was implemented, implemented through Jesus Christ. And so Paul mentions both here. God is the author here, the one who initiated the salvation process, and the Lord Jesus Christ who implemented it. And is there any hope without our Lord Jesus Christ? Of course there isn't. He is our hope. And without him there is no hope for anyone. To Timothy verse 2, and notice this, a true son in the gospel or in the faith. To Timothy, a true son in the faith. Would that imply that there are those who have become a part of the faith who are not true sons or daughters of the faith? Well, yes, there are those who indeed apostatize and fall away after they have become true sons or daughters in the faith, for sure. But Timothy, he emphasizes here as being someone who is genuine. There's an emphasis that Paul gives here, and he uses the word true, which has an interesting derivation. The original meaning of the word was one who was born in wedlock. True, that is, meaning born in wedlock. Not one who was born out of wedlock, but one who was born in wedlock. One who is legitimate. And that was the original meaning of the word. True son in what? The faith. Not in a faith, among faiths, but in the faith. Remember what Jude wrote? Contend earnestly for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. What is your faith? You hear people ask. What is your faith? As though there are many and the implication is one may be as acceptable as another. No, there is one faith. What did Paul write in the Ephesian letter? There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all is above all, through all, and in you all. Paul was a true son in the only faith that will save. And the faith is synonymous with Christianity. The system of faith by which all who will be saved must be saved. And then Paul's usual salutation with the addition of the word mercy that is here that is not always in Paul's salutations in his Epistles, Grace and peace are genuinely seen, as Paul writes, but grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the difference between grace and mercy? Well, it is said that, that grace, of course, is the unmerited favor of God. It's the foundation upon which salvation is 
achieved and obtainable because without God's grace there could be no possibility of salvation. It is by grace that God has made known his salvation through Jesus Christ. Mercy is the pity and, commis- and the uh, compassion that is seen upon the, the sinner. And it has said, been said that mercy is grace in action, if you will. God taking pity and extending his compassion and his mercy based upon his unmerited favor. And, of course, peace is the result. Peace is the result of God's grace and God's activity through his merciful actions to save us, and the result is reconciliation with God through Christ and the peace that flows from that reconciliation. And then he comes to some specific instruction in verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. First of all, that admonition says there is a specific doctrine. Something that we might think, well, everybody understands that. No, obviously most people don't. As a matter of fact, most people do not understand that there is a specific form of doctrine. Most people who claim to follow Christ will basically say that there are variations that can be engaged in, believed, and practiced, and that there is no consequence that follows. But the scriptures say otherwise. And in fact, in the second epistle to Timothy, he speaks of the sound words of the gospel that must be followed. Time and again, as a matter of fact, the doctrine of Christ, the specific teaching, the hold fast, the form of sound words, as he writes to Timothy in the second Epistle, which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Hold fast the form or pattern. That's 2 Timothy 1.13. Listen to it. Hold fast the what? The pattern. The pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Here in the first epistle, I urge you to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now there's something that Paul is talking about here that is specific, something that is concrete, something that cannot be and must not be altered or changed. It reminds us of what he wrote to the Galatians when they were about to be seduced to go back under the law of Moses, at least in part, as there were Judaizing teachers who were trying to bind circumcision upon them. And he said, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him who called you into the grace of Christ, unto another gospel, which is what? Which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven should preach any gospel unto you other than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so I say now again, if anyone preaches any gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. Time and time again, passage after passage, makes it, make it abundantly clear that there is a specific doctrine. And John reminds us that whoever goes beyond that doctrine does not have God. So it is not the case 
that we can extend fellowship and embrace all those who simply claim to follow Christ, but who are teaching a perverted doctrine. We cannot do that, must not do that, and indeed, Paul writes to Timothy here and says it is absolutely urgent that you charge some of these that they teach no other doctrine. Obviously, there were some who were. Ephesus was a very key city, and the church at Ephesus was obviously, as were all the congregations, important to the Apostle Paul. And you recall that as he met with them at Miletus, at the last time he thought he would ever see them again, he said, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He said, I know that after my departing, grievous wolves will enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Even from among your own selves, men will arise teaching what? Perverse things, and will draw away the disciples after them. It may very well be that what we're reading about here in 1 Timothy is now what Paul had feared taking place. And he is concerned that Timothy sink, settle in there. It's the idea here. I want you to settle in and spend time there and charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And he adds in verse 4, nor give heed to fables, myths, in other words, to which the Jews were uh, prone to, uh, to adhere. And uh, the so-called targums are filled with the teachings of these rabbis about certain things that supposedly the ancestors did that there is no foundation in truth for them at all. And they were very concerned about all of these things that supposedly took place by the ancestors that are recorded by the rabbis in the Targums. And what about endless genealogies? That's another term that indicates that the problem that Paul was concerned about was coming from Judaizing teachers here, those who were again seeking to bind Judaism upon, upon Christians. Endless genealogies. Were the Jews among those who were concerned about genealogies? Oh, very much so. Very much so. And yet there's not a Jew living today, as far as I know, who can trace his genealogy now to know from which tribe he has emanated. And yet he would have to if we're to one day have the Messiah come, because the Messiah has to come in fulfillment of prophecy from the tribe of Judah. And yet the genealogies have been destroyed. Herod the Great, it is said, did much to destroy them himself because he was an Idumean and he wanted to establish uh, a hereditary rule over the Jews, but the Jews had an advantage over him because they could trace their genealogy and he couldn't. And so it is said that he destroyed the genealogy so that they would not have an advantage over him. But... Nonetheless, whatever the reason for the destruction of them, they've been destroyed. The rabbis say that when the Messiah comes, he will restore the genealogies. But the Messiah will come and restore the genealogies. The one who claims to be the Messiah will restore the genealogies, proving himself to be the Messiah. Wouldn't that immediately make him a little bit suspect if he's the one that's restoring the genealogies to prove that he's the Messiah? No. 
it seems that the providence of God obviously was involved in the destruction of the genealogies no matter how they were destroyed and after the destruction of Jerusalem the Jewish system can no longer be revived or exist and so indeed Paul was saying do not give heed teach these people not to give heed to these fables to these endless genealogies which do what which cause disputes rather than what rather than godly edification which is in faith and as we close tonight with that verse that reminds us that we need to be determined to give ourselves over to those things that are building up the body of Christ and not those things that would needlessly cause disputes but those things which produce godly edification, which is in faith. Godly edification, if it's to be godly edification, has to be by faith, doesn't it? And if it's done by faith, it's done according to the will of God. I look forward to studying with you, the Lord willing, these remaining verses and these epistles that Paul wrote to two men who were very important to him, one who was no doubt his closest companion once he met him and once he became a part of the work that Paul did in the kingdom of God, that young man being Timothy. And it simply reminds us of how important it is for us to be the kind of people who can indeed exert an influence as Timothy did, as his grandmother did, as his mother did and means so much to the kingdom of God and so much to other workers in the kingdom of God as Timothy did to Paul. What kind of worker are you in the kingdom tonight? Are you in the kingdom? If you're not in the kingdom, then our plea is that you become a part of that kingdom in the only way one can, and that is by obedience to the gospel of Christ. As Timothy obeyed the gospel at what was obviously a young age and never looked back and grew, and was a faithful servant of God, even unto death, as far as the scriptures reveal to us. But if there's someone here who has begun, as Timothy did, but has looked back, has wavered, thanks be to God, there's a way home for the wavered, and that is repentance, confession of any sin that needs to be confessed publicly, as God welcomes those who've wandered back to the fold. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation tonight, we plead with you to come now as we stand and sing to encourage you.